Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, covering the presidential campaign. In case you were wondering, we're now in the heat of the U.S. presidential campaign as evidenced this week by two back-to-back Democratic debates on NBC and MSNBC that took four hours in prime time. And not only did it enable all the candidates take on a much more public platform, but it also highlighted the coverage of each of these candidates and how different networks are sort of positioning themselves with different candidates. We're interested in, in particular about the coverage of Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren, and especially on the networks that aired the debates, NBC and its sister cable network, MSNBC. I'm thrilled to be joined by CJR's public editor for MSNBC, Maria Bustillos. Hello, Maria. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, really glad that you're here. So we're recording this on Friday, the day after this debate last night that contained this this really electrifying uh, moment between Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. And I'm sort of curious, one, what you made of it and how it sort of played out on television and also how you think it's going to affect the the way that the networks, especially MSNBC, covers and thinks about Joe Biden and the other candidates? Frankly, I think it's kind of a flash in the pan, really. Um, there was a, an interesting comment from Alex Perrine this morning in The New Republic pointing out that uh, Kamala Harris's first comment, the first applause line in the debate, which was about um, Americans don't want to see a food fight. They want to see how we can put food on the table was sort of like her being a cop, you know, kind of like starting out with a prepared line that was going to make a, uh, put a put a flag down, you know, like she wants to be the moderate candidate, you know, uh, and challenging Joe Biden, like specifically in that regard. And so while I think it made like a real splash and like raised her profile and, you know, made her look uh, like a really credible sort of challenger to him, he's, uh, very, very popular and very powerful among older people, and I think it's going to take more than one salvo to dislodge him. And, and when you talk about the the remarks, you're not talking about the food fight comment. You're talking about her exchange with him over his over par- partnership. And segregation. With, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we had already the sort of pundit class had already kind of broken down the segregation comment, um, which I. Fact, his team would have been more ready to be challenged on than busing per se. Uh-huh. She was able to personalize that by saying mm-hmm. that she herself had been bused as a child, and I mean that's important and it's certainly worth talking about. But you know her her vulnerabilities weren't challenged during this mm-hmm. uh, exchange or any other exchange mm-hmm. so far. And you know there's just an awful lot to process down the road before we get like a. Um, a clear picture of what these what what these vulnerabilities are, what the strengths are, and, and what the electorate is going to make of them. It's so interesting that you didn't you did you thought that this will pass for him because um, when I saw it, I, I I wasn't so much focused on the detail of the exchange, but just the fact one that he seemed taken aback by what he had to know was coming. The other thing that struck me is that then he then he proceeded to sort of fight back which I thought was like not a good move on his part. I mean, I, I just I thought I thought it sort of raised this idea that he's he's tone deaf to where the country is. 
and where the culture is and that this was sort of example number whatever of like what will be a lot of these similar instances but you didn't see it that way and you don't think that's the way it necessarily played yeah oh i agree with you completely it was a very weak performance that you know i mean we've seen many many weak performances from candidates who later went on to win i mean like you know you can go all the way back to like but you know reagan and mondale i mean anybody you know like obama turned in very weak debate performances and Um, you know, I just, I mean, I, I will say it, it, it raised Harris to a level of credibility that we hadn't yet seen. And I think that was a really important part of this. Yeah. And I think, you know, she was very commanding. And I think, you know, I think she has been discounted until now. It was a, an oversight that would would soon be remedied. You know, she's very powerful. I mean, she's a prosecutor. She's like spoken in, in debate situations of one kind and another her whole career. She's an extremely powerful speaker. But I mean, my whole feeling about this is almost more like a McLuhan-esque feeling. You know, I've been reading recently about the the great debates between Nixon and Kennedy and how television, you know, sort of affected the perception of those two candidates, I'm sure everybody's read a million times about how if you heard that debate on the radio, you, people mm. thought Nixon won, but if mm-hmm. they saw it on TV, they thought that Kennedy won, you know, simply because he was just so much more TV ready, you mm-hmm. know, sort of handsome and tan and looked healthy and together and didn't have the sort of worried look that like Nixon had in every picture of him you've ever seen. So I think that's also what we're seeing, you know, is like the the effect of television on what people think happened is like really can't be discounted. And yeah. so like to that extent, everything you said is like so true, like the weakness of Biden, the fact that he's older, people will use the word confused, you know, in mm-hmm. a way that sort of suggests senility mm-hmm. know, and is, you know, really unfair. I mean, in a lot of ways, like Sanders pointed out at the end, you know, that it's ageist, like he wouldn't go after somebody 35 and say this person is like callow and ignorant. Look at look at the issues. Look at look at what the person is saying. Look at mm-hmm. policy. Look at like, you know, because governing is not being on TV. Yeah. And I think I think we forget that. Yeah. Yeah. And as you point out, like the the question isn't how this is playing in the pundit class or how or what Axios is going to say the next morning. Really, it's mm-hmm. sort of how is it playing out in the country? I mean, on, on the on the former, I mean, the, the pundit class seemed clearly almost unanimous in declaring you know, her the undisputed winner and him sort of badly wounded. But we don't know. We don't know how it's going to look. Yeah. You you wrote in your debut public editor piece for CJR about MSNBC's sort of embrace of Biden and almost kind of anointing of him in the in the weeks prior to this debate and then how the segregationist comment sort of forced them to rethink that. But then we shared this this clip on Twitter yesterday where one of the sort of commenters for MSNBC Donnie Deutsch was was sort of going back again to the, like, where you know, Biden is where it's at. Yeah, Deutsch's comments were Biden was inevitable, that he, that we needed to show a stronger strength. <laughs> that was exude. We needed to exude, as Democrats, we needed to exude a stronger strength, is the way that Donnie Deutsch put it. And he felt that Biden represented that. And it was really, like, a kind of misogynist, uh, remark, I thought, against Warren is, mm-hmm. is what it was. And mm-hmm. then Lawrence O'Donnell responded to that. You're kind of making this up. Yeah. You know, like, this is what you think. He, yeah, he complete said, speculation. Like, 
yeah, zero value. This has zero value. And yeah. so there was a little bit of a testy exchange between O'Donnell and Deutsch about this. And I, I really do think that there is a, a schism in the coverage at MSNBC of people who are trying to navigate what is obviously kind of a tricky divide between sort of opinion journalism and informing the electorate of what they need to know in order to make their own decisions. Yeah. I mean, and this is a problem generally in sort of democratic punditry, whereas like Fox will pander to its audience by saying, you know, you decide. This is a less common message from uh, democratic pundits and and commentators in general. It's like the, the democratic side respects authority, like the authority of academics or mm -hmm. experts or science or stuff like that. So, so that like we're showing you people who are informed better than you are. And I think it sort of speaks to this whole divide, you know, in, in American culture in general, like scientism versus, you know, people, uh, populism, there's a whole, there's a, there's just a giant schism there. And, and, and MSNBC is kind of caught in the middle of wanting to uh, present informed opinion that you can rely on versus respecting its audience to the degree that it really takes in a democratic society to give the information that, that people require in order to, for them, you know, to make intelligent and informed decisions. And that's something that I'll be exploring a lot, I think, in this column. Yeah. Do you think that what happened last night, I mean, we talked. you talked about how you think it played out in the country, which was you, you don't think it really moved the needle that much. But what about at MSNBC? Do you think that going forward it's going to be harder for them to be so sort of supportive of Biden and his inevitability, given what happened? Yes, very much so. I think those, that's actually a really interesting thing that happened already, is that you saw people who had seemed to be really partisan for Biden kind of coming out in favor of Harris, including like uh, Chris Matthews this morning. Mm. I was really surprised to see him praising mm. her when he had been like so little hearts coming out all over, you know, in favor of Biden previously. <laughs> But, you know, she's a, she's a centrist candidate. She's very yeah. attractive. I mean, if you want, you know, if you, like, tend toward the conservative side of the Democratic Party, she's an extremely attractive option. Yeah. Also, I mean, you pointed this out, but she is a very good storyteller. I mean, it just struck me there time and again, the way that she constructed her anecdotes. Mm -hmm. You can, I mean, as you, as you mentioned, there's the sort of prosecutor background really play, really suits her and, and helps. Yes. I hadn't really considered before how the sort of Perry Mason stick comes uh. over great, <laughs> you know, in yeah. this context. I mean, it's like we're can, we're we're the jury, uh -huh. you know. It's, it works beautifully, but I mean, she has got a lot of skeletons in her closet. I mean, I, I don't know what's going to happen, you know, when the country at large discovers that she failed to prosecute Stephen Mnuchin uh -huh. or took campaign money from him. I mean, you know, two grand. She's the only Democrat. I think, in that cycle in 2012 or whatever it was to take a campaign funds from Stephen Mnuchin. I mean, this is like pretty dire, I yeah. would think. Yeah. Well, it's going to be totally fascinating. And the other, the, you know, finally, before we move on, I mean, the other thing is, that always strikes me is just how pack-like a lot of this press is. So, you know, now, now she's sort of been crowned as of last night, but, you know, next week is to entirely different. And somebody yeah. else will get, in a way, the, the sort of incredibly voracious cable networks, they need that changing of the guard. Because if it's, the, if it's the same king every week, it gets boring. So you got to sort of kick one out and bring in another one. 
That's a yeah, cynical view, I, but but I think it's. What you, yeah, I think there's something to it. I don't think it's cynical at all. I think it's critical that we understand this. You know, as sort of observers of the media and the watchdogs that we want to be, the first thing to notice is like again, I want to say the McLuhan-esque view of mm. like what the medium is doing to us. Mm-hmm. It's like they have to have a shiny thing every second. Yeah. You know, and and we are expected, you know, our, our our minds, the way we think, the way we conceive of politics, the way we conceive of of government are affected by the idea that there has to be something shiny every minute. And I think it's really deleterious, you know, to the future of democracy. I think yeah. it's really seriously I actually think I actually think it could end up hurting Trump um, going into this cycle in the sense that we all know the shtick at this point. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, he could he can be obnoxious. He can say crazy things. He can be sort of incredibly rude. And in the last election, it was like, oh, my God, this guy's running for president. He's doing this. But we're all so yeah. immune to it. I just wonder. It'll be fascinating to watch how the media responds. But I, but I just wonder if people are going to say, well, there, that, of course, is, that's what he does. And so maybe he's lost his shiny thing aspect. But we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had a, a moment listening to Harris speak last night, you know, so effectively, and I immediately flashed on the idea, you know, he better not try looming behind Kamala Harris. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She'll take him out. Go, yeah, she will, man. <laughs> She's like, I, I don't know. I don't know what she would do, but I'm sure he would uh, emerge with his loafers much muddied from <laughs> that encounter. <laughs> So talk to me about this role in general. I know it comes with a like a gold crown and um, <laughs> laurels of some kind. Um, I feel like it does. I think it's, <laughs> it's a wonderful project. I mean, my colleagues are people I've admired for a long time, and I'm having a lot of fun, you know, corresponding with them and learning how we should approach this really unusual sort of gift, you know, being able to cover this thing. The silence is deafening around you know, real criticism of media that is sustained and, you know, explicitly identified as keeping their feet to the fire. Mm-hmm. I mean, with the departure of Margaret Sullivan, who's a huge hero of mine from the New York Times and, you know, and so many other people, it's it's really concerning to somebody who cares a lot, as I do, about media ethics, you mm-hmm. know, so that, you know, being invited to do this is just, it's really a dream job. And so, how do you how do you think about well, one um, and this is something I asked Emily. You just watch a lot of MSNBC. Yes, I watch. It. I, I also listen to it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just like keep keep my headphones in all the time in case I don't want to miss anything. Now, I was not an obsessive watcher of it, but I certainly have become one. And then, how do you think about stories? I mean, I mean, because a lot of people ask me this question, like, what is the difference between an in-house public editor, um, of which there's only one in America. Thank you very much. Um, and and what you guys are doing. And I've been telling people there isn't. I mean, the only thing is we're not sitting inside of it. It's not like the people who were working inside these organizations had any special access. In fact, a lot of times they didn't. They weren't. A lot of times they didn't get their questions answered. So, do you think of yourself the same way? I mean, do you think of yourself as sort of performing the exact same kind of function, or is it some hybrid of that and a critic? I think my responsibility to the public is the same. I'm trying to represent the interests of, of an informed, intelligent public who has a lot to ask of this service. 
but I will say it's different, you know, even though, like, I'm sure Margaret Sullivan's job was not the easiest. Um, there was institutional support within the Times for her role. And other people that worked there, you know, had a, a camaraderie with her that I'm not going to be able to achieve. Mm-hmm. I work at MSNBC. I'm not there. I'm not in the room. I'm not in the building. But I hope to gain their trust as a somebody who wants the best for their coverage and for their viewership. Something I noticed, for example, you were saying that there was one public editor left, and this is at NPR, right? Yeah. The, well, okay, full-time. So this, is really, full-time. this is really interesting because NPR has an ethics statement that they publish openly mm-hmm. on their website that is a really detailed, responsible document. Mm-hmm. Now, I haven't been able to find the equivalent of that kind of elsewhere. And I sort of feel like this speaks to the thing we're talking about. I think all large public media outlets should tell their viewership like what they're doing. Mm-hmm. What am, what are we about? What do we stand for? I mean, this should be, like, seems pretty simple to me. You know, yeah. This is one of the first questions I asked the, uh, the comms people at MSNBC. Please tell me your ethos. What, yeah. what is... How does this work? And, you know, well, they, they don't have anything. I'm like, well, you know, do you have, like, standards and practices, you know, stuff, documents I can look at? The standards and practices are the same at MSNBC as they are at NBC. And I thought, well, okay. <laughs> I mean, what are you, you know? Yeah. I, and so I hope I can join the public and this organization in you know, sort of promoting clarity and quality and the things that I think we all want. Yeah. No, I've heard a lot of discussion about this. I mean, even though these organizations don't have public editors, almost all of them have standards editors. And those are right. but those are internally facing people who, you know, if you're a reporter at one of these places and you're like, I have a dilemma, what do I do? They'll they'll advise you, and mm-hmm. you know, they are the people that when there's a real shit show that they are involved in, sort of helping sort it out. Either a reporter does something unethical or a source claims that they did or whatever. But that's not that's different from a public facing thing. And actually, this thing about I mean, you mentioned NPR. I give them a ton of credit. I mean, they, they are quite transparent about their their standards about their hiring about the diversity of their staff they're they put a lot of information out there for their listeners to sort of help judge and i think it's it's because they have a public editor who's there and i actually think it's a great it's a great idea for you and your cgr public editor colleagues to sort of try to create a groundswell for people to start posting this stuff yeah i really want to do that I think it, I think it will be great. I mean, in reality, everybody should be or is, you know, sort of at least nominally on the same page of wanting there to be transparent, great, reliable, trustworthy information yeah. for as many millions of people as they serve. I mean, it's just an enormous audience. It's like such an important, important thing. And uh, I, I think, you know, we have an opportunity to do a lot of real good, you know. Yeah. Maria, I'm really happy to have you here and I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me, Kyle. I'm having a ball so far. Um, Everybody should read Maria's piece on CGR.org about MSNBC and Biden um, and watch the website and our social media feeds for more from her and from the other public editors who cover CNN, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. We're going to be taking next week off because of the July 4th holiday, but we will be seeing you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.